Well, hey, good morning. Grab your Bibles and turn to the last book in your Bibles, the last book of the New Testament, the book of Revelation. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 2 this morning. We are completing our study um, through the book of Ephesians just to kind of bring you up to kind of pace of where we're at. Last week, Cal spoke from Acts 20. And we've been studying the church in Ephesus really since uh, the New Year, since January. And, and just to kind of put it uh, sequentially or on a, on a timeline, Cal last week was talking about Paul's goodbye to the church of Ephesus. He was talking to the leaders in Ephesus. And he made the comment that um, true faith is marked by being willing to speak the truth and tears and genuine affection. And in Paul saying his goodbye to the church in Ephesus, he's warning them. He's saying, listen, um, you're your blood isn't on my hands. I spoke the full truth of the gospel. I talked to you about repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And he warns the leaders there. He says, listen, when I leave, wolves or false teachers are going to come into the church. They're going to try to lead away the disciples. You've got to protect the church. You've got to be on, on alert. I've warned you about this. And then Paul says, I'm going to be leaving. The Spirit is compelling me to go to Jerusalem. And, and I'm pretty sure that I'm going to be arrested there. And I don't know what happens, but... The warning is that it's going to be a season of persecution for me. So he does go to Jerusalem. He gets arrested. And he eventually is taken to Rome in chains. He's a prisoner. And while he's in prison in Rome, he writes a letter back to the church in Ephesus. That's the book of Ephesians that we've been studying while he awaited execution. Now, as we pick up the story in Revelation 2, we're looking at the church in Ephesus. Another letter written to the same church. Paul wrote his letter around 60, 62 AD. Now we're 85 to 90 AD. We're about 25 years later. Paul is not penning this letter. He's already been executed. This letter is written by Jesus Christ himself. The book of Revelation starts, it says, the revelation of Jesus Christ. John is the scribe writing down what Jesus wants to communicate to the church. Just as a reminder, in the last couple verses of the book of Ephesians, in Ephesians 6, I spoke two weeks ago, that the warning was, be careful, there's spiritual warfare going on. You've got to put on the whole armor of God. And chapter 6 ends this way. In verse 18 of chapter 6, it says, be praying at all times, keep alert. Paul says, pray for me that I can boldly proclaim the mystery of the gospel. And then the book of Ephesians, the last two verses of chapter 6, I'll put these on the screen, say this. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. That word incorruptible there could also mean immortal. What he's praying that they have in Ephesus is a belief or, or a love for God and for one another that will not die. Okay? That's the story we pick up in Revelation 2. A lot can happen to a church in 25 years. But I, I, I got to tell you, as a pastor, as I've been preparing for the last two weeks for this message, I'm not all that interested in a church that existed 2,000 years ago. I don't know any of those people. So as I looked at this passage, I began to think about our church and what are some of the things that I can take from Jesus' letter to the church in Ephesus? How, how does it apply? How does it correlate to our church? And then quite honestly, I started pressing into it a little more, even more than how I can apply this to our church or evaluating how our church compares to what Jesus was saying to this church, I began to 
look at my own heart. As a follower of Jesus, are the things that he's saying to the church in Ephesus, how do they apply to my heart? Where am I at? Where is my spiritual walk? What is the temperature of my affections for Jesus? So that's my heart as we get into this. I would just ask this question, how you doing? We're a week away from Easter. You guys fired up for that? Or maybe not so much. That wasn't like a roaring response. <laughs> so, so the question today is, it really doesn't matter what's going on in a church that existed 2,000 years ago. It matters some what's going on in our church. What matters the most is what's going on in our hearts because Jesus is going to address something in this church that I think if we're not careful, we can find ourselves needing the same appeal, the same instruction. So I'm going to pick it up in Revelation 2, verse 1. Here's the letter that Jesus writes to the church in Ephesus. He says this, he says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Okay, that's weird. Just, just weird language. We, we've entered the book of Revelation. There's a lot of symbolism used throughout the book of Revelation. There's going to be some things in looking at the symbolism that we're going to have to say we don't know what the author's intent was there. Much of the symbolism in Revelation is explained to us in the book of Revelation. But as we look at this first verse, we've got a problem. One of the first things that it says is it says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus. That word angel means messenger. And scholars debate, well, well, who's the messenger? Is there actually an angelic being? Is there an angel that overlooks every church? Or is it talking about the pastor or the leader of that church? I don't know. I don't know what the author is trying to communicate there. So I'm going to say I think it's an angel. Wouldn't die for it, not sure, it's not clear, I don't know, but I like the idea of an angel. There's something about a guardian angel overlooking our church that I kind of like. In 1 Peter uh, in 2, Peter says that the angels, in looking at Jesus' work on the cross, in looking at the gospel, they're studying the gospel, they're studying our response. They don't understand God's unconditional love. They don't understand repentance and forgiveness. And it says the things of the gospel are things in which the angels long to look. So maybe there's an angel assigned to our church. He's watching over our church and he's learning things about the gospel. How are we doing as teachers? <laughs> What's his takeaway? If, if we're supposed to be teaching or representing the gospel to angelic beings, how are we doing with that assignment? Or maybe it means the pastor or the leader of the church. I kind of like that too, depending on the day. I like the idea that he holds me in his right hand. I don't know. Text isn't clear. I don't know if it's an angel. I don't know if it's talking to the pastor. And then you've got this other language, which it says, him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. That's actually explained to us. We know exactly what that means. Look at the last couple verses in Revelation chapter 1. In Revelation 20, uh, chapter 1, there is a discussion. John is on an isle and uh, exiled on the Isle of Patmos. Jesus appears to him. His description has Jesus in his glorified state. John describes what that looks like. And then he says this in Revelation 1.20, as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the seven Angel are, are, are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So he says, listen, 
The stars are the messengers. The lampstands are the churches. Well then, back to Revelation 2.1, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the golden lampstands. Here's the only thing that I want you to see from that verse. Jesus cares about his churches. He's walking amongst his churches. He's aware of what's going on in the churches. There's times I'm like, Lord, are you seeing this? Yes. I know. Jesus loves his church more than we love his church. He knows what's going on. He cares. He's engaged. He's watching us as we assemble. And listen to what he says to the church in Ephesus, starting in verse 2. He goes, I know your works. That word works, is, it's in relation to the gospel. It's the things that we do to push the gospel forward. It's the sacrifices that we make. It's the testimony that we have as a church. It's the works that we do on behalf of the gospel. And then it says your works and your toil. That word toil is not just kind of Jesus being repetitive. Works and toil, they're different things. Works is the activity that we do for the gospel. Toil is the price that we pay for doing the work of the gospel. It's the hardship. It's the betrayal. It's the people making fun of it. The works and the toil and your patient endurance. Hear this next thing. And that you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. So Jesus is talking to this church. He goes, hey, there's some things going on there. You're working for the gospel. You're enduring hardships patiently. You get truth. You know how to defend it. You know how to compare truth to that which is false. And when somebody comes in and false teachings, the very thing Paul warned them about in Acts 20 at his farewell, he goes, you guys are holding off the false teaching. It says in verse 3, I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's, name's sake. What, what he's saying there is, he goes, for my name's sake, for the sake of the gospel, you're suffering well. You're, you're bearing up. And then he says, and you have not grown weary. That idea of growing weary basically means this, that they're in, the, they're in the fight, they're in the battle, they're engaged, they're willing to take another blow for the gospel. And I'm looking at this description of this church in verses 2 and 3, and I'm saying, man, that's a church I'd like to attend. They're working hard for the gospel. They're pushing aside false teaching. They're on course with what they're teaching about the gospel. They're patiently enduring. They're suffering, but they're enduring it well. Like, man, this is a church that, this is how I'd want to be identified as a church. All of these things, I wish that if there's an angel or if Jesus is looking at our church, I, my prayer is that he would say all of these same things about us. This is a church I could attend. Look at verse four. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. This is a church that was getting a lot of things right, but you can do a lot of really good things and miss the main thing. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. I want you to note, they, they didn't lose their first love. They didn't leave their first love. I lose stuff all the time. I lose my keys, I lose track of time, I forget about meetings, I leave stuff behind. My wife is like, hey, did you remember to bring this home? No, forgot. Like, like I can accidentally lose something. I can accidentally leave something. 
abandon? I don't know that you accidentally abandon your family or your career. Seems more intentional. And I don't know what caused the church in Ephesus to abandon their first love. I don't know if it was a conscious decision that we're done. It doesn't seem to indicate that or or, or be consistent with the things that Jesus has praised them for. But somewhere along the line, whether by decision or by slow drift, in spite of the fact that there's so many things that the church is doing well, they're missing the main thing. They've abandoned their first love. Probably it was a thousand small steps away from the affections that they had at first. So I was thinking about our church, looking back over the 11, 12 years that we've been here, I haven't seen a doctrinal shift. I haven't seen our theology change. I don't think that we're in danger of losing the gospel from our preaching or or doctrinal shifts in the way that we operate as a church. I haven't seen a lot of movement there, and I'm grateful for that. So that's not going to be our tendency as a church. Our tendency is going to be, have we held on to the things that are important? But we've got to ask ourselves a hard question, right? Have we abandoned our love for Jesus Christ? It's dangerous. Here's the big question if you're trying to keep notes. Have I abandoned my affections for Jesus? Questions I would ask, are we just going through the motions? Have I lost my joy for the gospel? Have I lost the excitement? Has my faith become stale? How did this happen? And and I think in West Michigan, if we've abandoned our first love, more often than not, here's what takes place. There's a point where if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you you realize that you were a sinner. You needed a savior. There's a holy God. We needed somebody to stand in that gap. So we repented of our sin. We called out on Jesus to save. And what we were met with, what we were confronted with, was the unconditional love on God and his willingness to save us in spite of who we are. And in that moment, the weight of the shame and the guilt of our sin is removed. What, what happens is Jesus takes that on the cross and we're no longer viewed by God or ourselves as just an accumulation of all of our failures or all of our shortcomings. What we realize is what happens on the cross is Jesus takes our sin and we're justified. We're no longer guilty. We're declared innocent. When God looks at us, he sees us through the lens of the redemptive work of his son. He, he views us as children We're called fellow heirs with Christ. And and this, the enormity of the gospel grabs our soul and it it, it excites us. It gives us a joy. And then over time, we we just slowly drift. And, And we start going to church and we're in small groups and we're going through everything that Christians do and we're reading our Bible and we're praying and we're doing all of these things. But as we do all of our things, there's a shift in our focus. And all of a sudden, we're, replacing the good news of the gospel with a list of things that we're supposed to do and a list of things that we're not supposed to do. And we convince ourselves that if we're doing better than we were yesterday at doing the good things on the list and avoiding the bad, that God likes us more. And all of a sudden, we have this lousy exchange where we go from the joy of Jesus forgiving sinners when they repent 
to a list, a system, a religion of what we're supposed to do and not supposed to do. And we go through the motions and all of a sudden, before we realize it, our affections are stolen. Where are you? Can you relate? Do you see how this can happen? As I was reading this terrible phrase in verse 4, but I have this against you, that you've abandoned the love that you had at first. I started doing a a self-assessment. I was listening to a guy by the name of Matt Chandler preach through this same passage, and he starts to ask some questions. What are the things in my life that stir my affections for Jesus? What are some of the things in my life that steal my affections for Jesus? And he started to list some things. And by the way, they weren't Sunday school things wasn't reading my Bible, praying, all of those things for sure steal your affections. But he was talking about things that he intentionally incorporates in his life to fire up or to stir his affections for Jesus. So I was listening to his list. I started to think, what are these things in my life? What are the things that I need to make make time for that stir my affections for Jesus? What are the things that tend to steal my affections for Jesus? So my list will look different from yours. The blanks in today's notes, you're not going to get them from me. You're going to get just my list. I'd encourage you, fill in those blanks on your own. What stirs your affections? What steals your affections? But to get you going, I'll give you some of the things that I thought of when I considered what stirs and what steals my affections. Here's something that stirs my affections for Jesus. Walks. And i got to be really careful because walking doesn't do it on its own. Tuesday mornings, Kristen and I will often go to our a house about an hour north up here, which is our main residence, and we'll be up there Monday and Tuesday. Monday, I'll start to work on a sermon, and then Tuesday, I'll be outlining. I tend to get up early in the morning, so I'll be there before sunrise. I'll be working on my sermon. I'll check my email. Typically, on Monday nights, I get the prayer requests that you all have submitted during the week. I begin to read through the prayer requests, and Kristen will eventually get up. We'll have some coffee together. The coffee thing's important. Okay, get the the coffee going, have some coffee, finish up studying, then I'll take a break, and I'll be like, hey, Kristen, I want to go for a walk. And I go for a walk. It's about two and a half, three miles. I walk around a lake, and um, I'm thinking about the sermon, thinking about the things that I studied. I'm, I'm praying for you. I'm remembering what the requests were. No phone, completely disconnected, just walking through nature, thinking about Jesus, thinking about his word, thinking about the flock, praying. That that stirs my affections for Jesus. In contrast, you want to know something that steals my affections? Running. (laughs) Running absolutely steals my affections. Some of you are like, no, that was the first thing on my list, like going for a run. Um, You're broken. I'm just telling you, like, like, like run, but then just go slower. It's called walking. Try that. Okay, way better. Some people are like, oh man, the thing that stirs my affections, I get up early and I go to the gym. The thing that steals my affections is thinking about going to the gym. I never go. Just thinking about it steals it. Running steals my affections. Just being honest, never enjoyed it. As I think through what fires up my affections, here's one. I like getting to church early. Before anyone else is here, before anyone else is on staff, six o'clock, seven o'clock in the morning, and I'll go to my office. My office is on the east end of the building, so from my desk, the window on the east side, as the sun comes up, man, I see the sunrise, or this last week, I see the, um, 
freezing rain hitting the window. But I like being there early, and sometimes I'll walk down here into this room, and it's empty, and it's quiet, and I'll just pray. Like, like there's something about getting here early stirs my affections. Here, here's something that steals my affections. Too much news and social media. It just steals my affections. Too much technology. Too much phone. Too much screen time. I, I, I find those are the things that, quite honestly, if I'm not careful, will steal my affections. Here's something that fires up my affections. Worship. And I'm going to be really specific here. This happened two weekends ago. This happens two, three times a year. On a Sunday afternoon, after people have worked on Saturday night and Sundays, many of the people on our staff that are involved in the music department, Chris, Lenny, Taylor, Alex, a lot of these people that are involved in our worship team, they'll come up to our place up north on a Sunday afternoon. Monday's typically their day off. They'll give up their entire Monday, and they set up a bunch of equipment, and they pair off into groups of two or three, and they write worship songs so that our church can sing. I can't write music. Nobody's ever asked to hear me sing. It's not my thing, but watching our young people writing songs about the gospel and the grace of our Lord, I'm just telling you, man, those are moments that fire me up. In the weeks leading up to one of the songwriters' retreats, my daughter Catherine is one of the songwriters, and where we live in Grand Haven, I have a downstairs condo. They live right above us, my daughter and our grandkids in Austin, my son-in-law. It's kind of the everybody loves Raymond thing kind of going on there. We're, we're stacked. And um, I'll wake up sometimes and I'll hear my daughter. She's just playing on the piano or in the afternoon she's playing on the piano just writing songs. Does a father's heart good to hear his daughter sitting writing songs, giving praise to Jesus. Man, I'm telling you what, man, it stirs my affections for Jesus. Here's something that steals my affections. Being too busy or not busy enough. I got to find the right pocket there. Because I got to tell you, when I'm too busy, I get grumpy. And then when I'm not busy enough, I tend to get grumpy. So I'll run and I'll chase and I'll go too fast and I'll be grumpy. And I'm like, I, I, my life's out of balance. I, I, I'm, I'm too busy. And then we'll go on vacation, and by 2 o'clock in the afternoon on the first day, I'm like, what are we going to do? Like, I'm, for me, I've got, I've got to find the right slot. Here, here's something that fires up my soul. Golf. Not any type of golf. Not a foursome of guys. Not a scramble. Those things are terrible. Okay? Early morning golf. First off, when the sun's just coming up, I'm either golfing with my dog. I take my dog early mornings when we're the first tea time. I'll take my dog with me or Jeff's stuck. One of the two. It's either my dog or Jeff. I don't know what that says about Jeff or my dog. But it's, that's the combo. Just me and Jeff or me and my dog. I'll hit a couple shots. My dog will get distracted by turkeys or deer. He'll go running off in the woods. He knows the course. He'll find me later. And I'm just out there walking, thinking, praying, Praising, slowing down. Do you know what steals my affections? Golf. <laughs> when I'm up early in the morning and I'm playing terrible and I'm more concerned about 
my game and my score and I'm working for some tournament that's coming up and all of a sudden I'm consumed by my play rather than what's going on around me. And as I started to think about this list, here's what I don't want you to miss. If you're not careful, the very things that stir your affections, if you begin to set your affections on the thing that stirs your affections, like golf, it actually begins to steal your affections. Like, there's things that you can begin to focus on. You say, man, that really stirs my affections. But if that becomes the sole thing, the sole motivation, it actually works the other way. And going through the exercise of what's on your list, here's what I want you to see. Even more than what you do or where you are, what stirs your affections for Jesus is how you view where you are and how you're doing the things that you're doing. I sat with a man in our church a couple weeks ago, and he was telling me about his career. And he said, 20, 25 years ago when I was starting my firm, I sat down with my partner, and we were up till four in the morning. And what we were doing that morning is we were saying, how would Jesus want this type of firm to operate? That was their goal in setting up the firm, setting up the partnership. And 25 years later, he's looking back and saying, that made it so it was enjoyable every day when I went to work because I was looking at my work through a gospel lens. Do you know what stirs my affections for Jesus? Alaska. I love going to Alaska, but I only get there about every two or three years, and if that's the week that has to stir my affections, what am I going to do for the other 150 weeks between every trip? See, there has to be things that we can do in the day-by-day, in the context that we find ourselves in, whether we're sailing on still seas and the sun is shining or whether we're in the middle of a storm and the waves are rocking, what are the things that we can do that will stir our affections for Jesus? More than just where we find ourselves, who we find ourselves with, or what our circumstances are. So, the charge goes out for this church. You've lost or you've abandoned your first love. Look what it says in response, verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. So how how do I restore my affections? Well, there's three things in that verse. The first is this. Remember. If you're going to remember where you were, you have to do an assessment of where you are. Like, how are your affections for Jesus? Do you remember what they were like when you were fired up? Do you remember the things that stirred your passions or your affections for the gospel? That word remember in the text, it's important. That word remember, in the Greek, there's always a a tense to the word. It's not past tense. It's not future tense. It's present tense. Remember. It means continually remember. Don't think about it for a minute and then forget. We are going to have to constantly remember what it was like when we were saved, what the gospel was like when it was fresh, what it is to remember everything that Jesus has done. It's a discipline. Remember, continual. Then the text says this, repent. Okay. If in response to this message, you're looking at your heart and saying, if I were being honest, my affections for the Lord, I wouldn't call it a raging fire. There might be an ember that's still Shows some orange, some heat. 
but it's not where it should be. So, so if you find yourself there, the call's really simple. It's to repent. It's not to acknowledge that the flame is about to go out. It's to do something about the flame that's going to go out. If I'm sitting by a fire at our house, and my wife comes up to me and goes, hey, the fire's dying, my response cannot just be, yep, I acknowledge that the fire is about to go out. What do I have to do? I, I have to put another log on it. I have to stoke the fire. I've got to do something. I've got to turn. Repentance is not just acknowledging that your affection is weak. It's acknowledging that your affection is weak and then doing something about it. The word repent in scripture never is a conscious acknowledgement of our sinner that something's wrong. It's a turning from the patterns that have gotten us into the place that we are. If Jesus were to look at your heart, if you're concerned that he would say, but I have this against you, that you've abandoned the love that you have at first. The call is to remember, the call is to repent, and then the call is to return. It says in the text, do the works you did at first. So I'm going to take you back down memory lane to the first week in this series. It's the first Sunday of the new year in January, I spoke from Acts 19. And in Acts 19, Paul is establishing the church in Ephesus. There's a lot of commotion. He's fighting a lot of persecution. Paul and some of his followers are dragged into the Colosseum because they're upsetting the commerce and the idle trade in the season of Ephesus. They're under persecution immediately. The next thing that happens in chapter 19 in Acts is this crazy story. Paul is going through the city of Ephesus. He's encountering a lot of spiritual warfare, and he's casting out demons. And the text tells us that the high priest, his name was um, Sceva, Sceva, he had seven sons, and the seven sons observe that Paul is casting out the demons. So they say, man, it would be cool if we did that. So what they do is they go out and try to find a demon-possessed guy. Never a great plan, okay? And the seven guys, if you remember... It's really interesting. They go to the man with the demon inside of him or that's demon oppressed and they say this. They say, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul proclaims. And it says, but the evil spirit answered them and it says, Jesus I know, Paul I recognize. Who are you? And then it says the man that was oppressed by the demon jumped on the seven brothers who were trying to cast him out and they beat him till the men ran wounded and naked. Okay. I'm not much of a fight referee. I'm not into MMA. But I do believe if you enter a fight with pants and you leave the fight without pants, I think that's a unanimous decision who won the fight. Wouldn't you agree? And then the text to add injury to insult. Not only does it tell that these men beat him naked. Listen to what it says next. I love the humor in this. Verse 17. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus. <laughs> hey, aren't you the seven guy? Aren't you one of the brothers who got beaten? Yeah, yeah, I'm him. Everybody knows. To all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. Okay, we're getting the point. And fear fell upon them all. Here's the part I want you to see. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Look at verse 18. Also many, get this, of those who were now believers came. 
Okay, so when the church of Ephesus started and the gospel was spread, many became believers. And this verse is specifically referencing not new people coming to Christ. It's saying those who had already came to Christ, those who were already a part of the church, of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts, brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found that it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. How do we restore our affections for Jesus? The beginning of the series, I asked this question at this part of this passage. How can we be sure that our faith is our own, that we're not just going through the motions? Here's what they were doing at first. Here's what they returned to. They were dragging their sin into the light. They weren't wearing masks. They weren't pretending. The name of the Lord was being extolled. And the followers in Ephesus were saying, we're not going to pretend. We're going to be true about what we're struggling with. We're going to be transparent. We're going to drag our sin into the light. And then the second thing I said was that Jesus became most treasured. They took everything that was valuable to them and said, listen, I want to cast off anything that would steal my affections for Jesus. Back to Revelation, chapter 2, verse 5. Remember, repent, return. Then it says this, If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Remove your lampstand to the church. The warning was this, my presence will depart. In the Old Testament, we read about the presence of the Lord departing the nation of Israel, and the word is Ichabod. If you find yourself this morning truly assessing your heart, understanding that you've abandoned your first love and that there's something that you need to do about it, please understand you're at a crossroads. If you don't do it, Ichabod. For a church, there's no worse news that can be pronounced. The presence of the Lord trumps strategy, it trumps talent, it trumps mission, it trumps everything else a church can do. Hold on to the presence of the Lord. It's most important for a church, for your family, for your heart. Verse 6, yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. That just... Best scholars understand, we're not sure, that the Nicolaitans were a sect of Christianity that had merged Christianity to culture and it involved idolatry and sexuality. Look at verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That, that, that's Jesus writing to the church in Ephesus and he says, listen up. Listen to what I say next. He says, to the one who conquers, okay, Different translation, different words there. To the one who overcomes, to the one who bears up, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. It's interesting. Revelation 2 and 3, there's seven letters to seven churches. Each letter contains this phrase, to the one who overcomes or to the one who conquers, to the one who conquers, to the one who conquers, and then there's a promise attached to it. The promise given to the church that has abandoned its first love is that you will eat of the tree of life. Let me close by doing this. Let me direct your attention to where the text 
directs your attention. In Revelation 22, we read about the tree of life. It says this in verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were through the healing of the nations. Lady approached me as I was grabbing a donut today, tears in her eyes. Hey, how come the Lord isn't answering the prayers for the people of Ukraine? In time, in due season, he will. The Lord will heal the nations. It's promised. This is this in verse 4. I'm sorry, verse 3. No longer will, be there, will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. The night will, no, will be no more. There will be no need for light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. So if Jesus were here, and he was walking amongst us, walking up and down the aisles, and he made eye contact with you, What would he say? Knowing you as only an all-knowing God could know you. Would he say, great to see you in church, but you've lost your first love? You've abandoned the love that you had at first? Do me a favor, just bow your heads for a minute as we close. Alec is going to lead us in worship. I'd just like you to sit, maybe eyes closed during the first verse. He'll call you when he wants you to join. Maybe in this moment, in this season, a week before we celebrate Jesus' work on the cross and then his resurrection and his defeating of death, maybe we just need to take a moment and assess where we are. Not just as a church, but as individuals. And maybe we find ourselves at a crossroads. What would Jesus say? If he were here in our midst, if he was speaking directly to us, would his prayer be to return to the love that we've abandoned? If so, the response needs to be now. Father, I thank you for your word. May it do its work. May it sift through our hearts. May it reveal truth. It's in your name we pray. Amen.